Hey friends, I'm excited to share this conversation I just had with Beryl Dove Lerner. Beryl is a philosopher who recently published a book called Human Divine Interactions in the Hebrew Scriptures, Covenants, and Cross Purposes. In this conversation, we talk about a range of topics because his book, which is largely uh, a collection of some of his essays, um, touches on a range of topics. So we talk about covenant and specifically the Abrahamic covenant. Um, we talk about um, moral ethical systems, the problem of evil. We get on the topic of Job and Job's suffering. Lots of different things we discussed, which makes this conversation, uh, which made this conversation so much fun. Um, you'll notice in the conversation that we don't really agree on everything, that we approach the, some philosophical questions from different perspectives, um, and we uh, would even make different exegetical decisions when it comes to the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, nonetheless, this was a fun uh, dialogue to have. I learned a lot. Uh, Beryl's book is largely interdisciplinary, which um, you know essentially means that he brings philosophy and, um, and uh, biblical theology or uh, Hebrew Bible exegesis together, and um, which was a lot of fun. I have a great um, passion for those sorts of interdisciplinary approaches. So anyway, it was a fun conversation to have, and, and um, I, I know you'll be blessed by it. Um, a little bit about Beryl. Beryl was born in Washington, D.C., and uh, he received his B.A., bachelor's degree in social and behavioral sciences from Johns Hopkins University. He also has an M.A. in philosophy from, uh, from uh, the University of Chicago, as well as a Ph.D. in philosophy from Tel Aviv University. He's also currently an uh, associate professor of philosophy at the Western Galilee College um, in Israel, and it was a delight to have this conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Because the conversation went really long, like a little over two hours, I decided to break it up into two different episodes. So what you're about to hear is part one, and next week I will release part two. Okay, well, without further ado, let's get to the conversation. <laughs> Well, we are here with Beryl Dove Lerner to talk about his latest book, Human Divine Interactions in the Hebrew Scriptures, Covenants, and Cross Purposes. Beryl, thank you so much for being on the show. Hi there. <laughs> yeah, thanks for being here, man. It's uh, We've been emailing back and forth for a while now, and it's great to finally meet you, maybe not in the flesh, but digitally, at least. Yeah, through the magic of Zoom. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Well, um, let's just begin before we dive into the book. And um, uh, I've, I've I've made all kinds of notes in the book, and so um, I'd love to just pick your brain about it. And I think I think we have a lot in common. We both love the Bible. We both love philosophy, and uh, so that's that's a lot of fun to 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 bridge the to bridge the two together. So I have a lot of questions about some of that. But um, yeah, just let's just start off by uh, telling us where you're from, what's your educational religious background. Where do you currently teach and live? All, all the fun stuff like that. All right. Well, um, I usually trick people into thinking that I'm very good at languages, but actually I was born in the USA, and that's why I speak English like this. I was uh, born in Washington, D.C. into a modern Orthodox Jewish family. I got a, a kind of uh, a classical uh Jewish education, one might say at least through ninth grade, and um uh, and I continued studying on my own and in various places with that. Uh I uh did a bachelor's in social and behavioral sciences at Johns Hopkins, and after that a uh, master's in philosophy at University of Chicago. But the story, I won't go into all, it's it's a complicated story because um, 
Uh, I also, uh, I was in this uh, youth movement called B'nai Akiva, to a religious Zionist youth movement, which at the time was very closely associated with the religious kibbutz movement. Do people still know what kibbutzim are? Um, yeah, you know, I think so. Uh, but yeah, go ahead and tell, tell us. I don't know. Um, it's like a, a it's a, 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 it's, it's a, uh, kind of a communal village, which in its classical form is very socialist, socialistic, socialistic, and usually agriculturally based. Anyway, mm. so we were, so to, so at the time, B'nai Kibo was very uh, connected with, with Israel's uh, religious kibbutz movement, and I was in that, and uh, and my wife and I and our and uh, our baby who had just been born moved to Kibbutz Shluchot where I live. We were in a a group of people in this in this movement who who were together moving to the same kibbutz. And uh, yeah, so I milked lots of cows. <laughs> that was that was my my main place of work, and. Um, so it's like a dairy. It's like a farm, essentially. Yeah, well, no, with... yeah, it's a farm, and we have okay, we yeah. have uh, we can you know, like date palms and and fish ponds and uh, chickens and and turkeys and uh, yeah, and they, we have a, a big dairy operation. And so I was working in the dairy operation for a good number of years mm-hmm. until I figured out that it was really true that I have a strong academic orientation. Um. I got permission from the kibbutz to to start working towards a PhD. I got a, a a day a week to work on that, and eventually I got a kind of fellowship at Tel Aviv University, so I could spend uh, three days a week working on that. The other days, uh, milking cows. So I did a PhD on uh, the philosophy of social science of Peter Winch, the Neo Wittgensteinian. If anyone's heard of him, he also wrote quite a bit on philosophy of religion. And I started teaching uh, mostly where I'm still teaching at uh, Western Galilee College, which is an ACO known as Acre mm. to uh, people who read uh, history in English. And um, yeah, and um, so I, I milked fewer and fewer cows and taught more and more courses until uh, at some point I wasn't doing anything with the cows and I was only teaching. Yeah. And, uh, again, moving my way up the the ladder of uh, of academic status there, and uh, that's the story. We have we have five kids. All of them are grown up. All of them are married. All of them have kids. So. Mm-hmm. And my wife's name is Bacheva. I should mention that, and she she is the businesswoman of the family. She, I hate anything that has to do with uh, making or spending money, and she understands money. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so, um, so you did it. You did a PhD at Tel Aviv. You were previously at University of Chicago. And what did you do at Chicago? I forget. Or did you say? At Chicago, I did a PhD in philosophy. That It was oh. a very strange story. At the time, I already knew that I was going to move to this kibbutz, and I was trying to find mm-hmm. something um, useful to learn mm-hmm. for the kibbutz, and I started uh, studying to be a, an electrician. Mm-hmm. And 
forget it. That's a whole story. I learned a lot more sociology than 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 electricity there. Yeah. And at some point, I thought, oh, this is this is crazy. So in the afternoons, after I finished uh, my electrician's course, I would mm-hmm. go off to University of Chicago to work on a master's. Okay. And uh, yeah, in philosophy, but it was you know there it's there's 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 no such thing as a real master's in philosophy there it's just you know something they give you on your way to getting a phd and i just there's a number of courses and submitted some papers and uh got the Mm -hmm. master's and we packed up and uh moved to israel to the kibbutz well i need to have you back on the show at some point so we can talk about philosophical investigations (laughs) you mentioned (laughs) yeah um no that's a lot of fun i I have a philosophy background as well and my my bachelor's degree was in philosophy and then my phd it's a long story i'll spare everybody the details but i initially wanted to just teach philosophy at at the university level but then i got into grad school in philosophy and i was like you know i really like theology most of my focus was on philosophical theology or whatever i'm like i should go to seminary so i do all that and then i'm like you know what i really miss philosophy i can't abandon philosophy so I did ended up, long story short, did a PhD on uh, kind of an interdisciplinary approach to biblical studies and uh, philosophical hermeneutics, Hans Gadamer and all that kind of stuff. So I'm very um, uh, well acquainted with the German philosophers and the continental philosophy, all that kind of stuff, you know. So it, it's, a, it's a lot of fun to, uh, I, you know, you, it's interesting because you don't, you don't meet a lot of people who are interested in an interdisciplinary approach to the Bible, like, like in, it, with respect to like philosophy and stuff so it's it's fun to be able to chat so well, one day we'll have you on the show to talk about that kind of stuff can, can i mention someone else's book i'm in the middle of yeah, reading, I'm reading a book to review it okay it came out a few years ago and i think it may be much better than mine and i feel i should mention it uh there's a, a woman named charlotte katzoff okay at uh, Bailan University. She may, she may have gone into retirement. It's called Human mm. Agency and Divine Will, the Book of Genesis. Oh, wow. And she really does the work. I mean, yeah. she goes into these into these biblical stories and and she lays on some heavy duty uh mm. theory of action and epistemology mm. and yeah. really goes into it trying to uh understand the inner world of of uh you know uh, characters in the book of genesis in a very interesting way especially that it's not so much theological it's a lot more sort of uh, the philosophical psychology mm-hmm. of yeah people who are who find themselves involved in a um uh, providential history but okay. you know, what's going yeah. on in their heads right right so it's sort of in and it's, it's sort of i mean we haven't talked about my book at all but i feel mm-hmm. like um it sort of would give a much better philosophical mm-hmm. underpinning to some things i wrote than than what i did myself in my book well, you know, we all have our our, our, our particular niche or we just focus right. on. And then there are other scholars who come along and it can buttress our arguments or right. offer a different spin. So, yeah. Well, let's. Everybody, let's yeah, go ahead. Everybody should look that up. Charlotte okay. Katzoff. That's okay. 
K-A-T-Z-O-F-F, Human Agency and Divine Will from Rutledge. Mm. It's from the same series as my book. came out a little bit before, but I didn't read it when when I was writing my book. Now, Drew Johnson is the editor for this series. He's one of the editors, right? right? Okay, that's right. Yeah. And I have a friend, Andy Judd, down at Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia. He's... He's got a book coming out, I think, this month or next, or February 2024, um, in that same series too. So I've I've been familiar with the with the series just through Andy's work, and um, he's actually publishing. I think he's it's a it's a book on genre. I think with some Hans Gottimer stuff too, which is super cool. But yeah, I'll have Andy on the show at some point too. I, anyway, I, the series looks really fabulous. Like I need to dive more into it, and I, I'll end up reading Andy's book for sure. And um, and I thoroughly enjoyed your book. So let's just, let's dive into this. Um, okay. um, so your book is centered around the Hebrew Bible and you interact with, you know, a number of stories There are 12 chapters, a good, good number for a book about the Hebrew Bible. And um, uh, you draw on the well of philosophy. And I know that like, um, you draw from the well of philosophy, I should say. And I know that, you know, there's, all, there's this encouragement to pick a discipline, focus on your thing and stay siloed there. But can we just talk broadly a little bit about interdisciplinary approaches? Like that's what your whole the whole series is for the 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 book that you're you've published right. that series, the interdisciplinary approaches to scripture. And so, um, yeah, can you speak a little bit about that? Like, what are the benefits of bringing philosophy to bear upon these questions? Well, I'll tell you. Um, as you may have noticed from my uh, from the introduction to the book, I have not worked out a methodology. <laughs> I have not worked out a methodology. Basically, I just feel that, uh, you know, when it comes to dealing with the Bible, I can't tie a hand behind my back and I have to come with, come at it with everything I got. And uh, some of my tools of analysis come from philosophy. And, you know, I... T- you know, it's just too, it's, it's too much to deal, you know, to deal with the Bible. You, you've got to bring in whatever you got. And, and so I also bring in philosophy. I know that may sound terribly uh, anti-methodological uh, or not, not academic enough. The truth of the matter is the advantage of writing a book like that is that you don't have to fit into a pigeonhole made up by a journal. Mm. that you know and i could tell it from from the referees uh reports on the book one of the referees god bless him i could tell that he was a regular bible scholar and he was appalled that i did not cite all of the relevant enormous infinite literature uh in biblical studies but basically that was because I, I I don't really know it very well, and I'm not going to live long enough to feel like I have a good grasp of it, and I just had to to write what I could, and so I could get away with that in the book. And I have been burned by Bible journals occasionally. Some of my stuff they're willing to publish, and some of it, you know, it's just I'm not playing their game. So, And the same thing can happen in philosophy, that uh, especially mm-hmm. uh, after... Uh, Reading Katsoff's book, I feel like, wow. You know, I sort of, I, I'm, you know, <laughs> this sounds terrible, but I feel like I'm in a position where I tell the, the, the Bible scholars, 
hey, hey, what do you want? I'm just a philosopher. And then the philosophers <laughs> say, uh, you call that a conceptual analysis? You know, hey, hey, you know, I'm just doing biblical exegesis, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so so that I just sort of play both sides of the of the game against each other to sort of get away with with writing the way I do. So that's why we're friends. <laughs> because I I really appreciate that that approach because I I feel the same way in terms of the you know when when I hear critiques about these sorts of things like well you didn't go far enough into this question about this you know this thing uh the way the Hebrew Bible relates to the Septuagint so I don't know. I'm like well that, that those those are interesting but that's not the sort of book that I'm trying to write. That's not what I'm trying to those are not questions I'm trying to answer. I'm trying to do something different here. And so it tends to make the philosophers and the biblical scholars a little uneasy. Like, well, what exactly, you know, I I mean, I could bloat the footnotes with a ton of sources and reference. That's totally fine. I can do that. Honestly, I have, I have a tendency to do that. But I don't want to bury, you know, I don't want my arguments to die the death of a thousand footnotes. You know what I mean? Or a thousand qualifications, I guess you could say. Right. And so I want, I want to just... I want to do my own thing and offer a perspective, and, you know. And here's the other thing I would say, and tell me what you think about this. I think the benefit of bringing ov- overtly bringing philosophy and philosophical categories and concepts to bear upon scriptural exegesis, the benefit of that is that you're being transparent about your own assumptions whereas many biblical scholars, here's the deal, they bring philosophical assumptions to the text too. They just don't talk about it, right? It's and so I think a philosopher like yourself has an advantage because you're actually able to um, be clear and concise about your conceptual framework. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, there's something to that. I I don't know how good I was at doing it. <laughs> I hope that 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 I succeeded to some extent. But I'll tell you the dirty truth here. No one's listening, right? Yeah, nobody's nobody's listening. <laughs> really, if you ask me what the genre of this book is mm-hmm. and what the you know, what is the book about? I would say that it is my con- contribution to the continuing tradition of Jewish interpretation of mm. the Bible. Oh, I could see that. I think that's a good description. Yeah. And, you know, I came to that with what I came to it with, you know, I, you know, because I have a background in philosophy and different things. And, and, I, and I brought that with me. But that's, that's really what the that's that's really where the book belongs and um and i would be uh, very flattered if for instance a, a genuine academic uh, bible scholar read it and it gave them some good ideas you know that that's fine that would be very nice and if people in philosophy thought that uh, the way i analyze certain things would be uh, you know i a useful example of uh, how to understand certain things that that would be very nice for philosophy. But really, what I'm doing is is uh, Jewish biblical interpretation. But me doing it as somebody who, you know, I know some things I don't know other things. Also, you know, in in Judaism, I know some things and there are a lot of things I don't know. Also, basically, I brought I brought to the table kinds of things I know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I should, I was just thinking, like, I should say, I'm not faulting biblical scholars for not doing philosophy. I totally get that. Like, we need biblical scholars just to do biblical scholarship. The same goes for philosophers. Just do philosophy. That's great. I think my thing is, I I, I want everybody of both sides to be careful 
when they're critiquing those crossover authors, those bridge builders, I guess you could say, because that's a legitimate a mode of thinking too, right? And I like the way you put it, and I agree with you. I think you're continuing the tradition of Jewish interpretation of Scripture. You offer some really interesting perspectives. I think in an email I sent you after I read the book, I said something like, look, even if someone doesn't agree with your exegetical conclusions, which personally for me, like, I, I think I would make a few different choices than you made, but either way, you offer a perspective that has to be dealt with, and I think it's a valuable perspective where you know nobody can walk away after reading a chapter of your book thinking the same thing about those texts again and i think that's a sign that you've written something very worthwhile and uh very helpful and you get the gears going so you're 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 far too modest here i think you've written a a good book that is definitely worthy of of further stuff of further thought yeah well i i would add to that that the way that i see the purpose of the book what you're saying is great because I don't see uh, interpretation of scripture for me. It's not something that somebody is going to come up with the one single final correct answer that, oh, they have found the truth. And this could be a kind of, this may be a kind of a more of a Jewish thing because we're not looking, you know, for a, a saving kerygma or, you know, some kind of you, you know, wow, we have to find out exactly what you're supposed to believe from, from, from this, but rather, you know, it's sort of, yeah, this is great. You came up with a new way of looking at it. And, you know, we're trying to, uh, we're trying to be creative and get as much as possible out of these texts, all kinds of stuff and people disagreeing with each other. And it's great that people, people are involved with Torah. And, um, you know, so I definitely, you know, even some of this stuff, I don't even know if it's if it's really true. And uh, or it's certainly not, you know, the end of the story. It would be some of it I see as um, extreme views, which would be good to be out there. You know, they, I think in, in contemporary Jewish philosophy, there's, uh, for instance, there's a man, uh, Yeshayahu Leibovitz, who was in Israel, who had very extreme views in uh, Jewish religious philosophy. I don't think anybody thinks he was right, but it's really good to have that as a kind of a conceptual edge that people can refer to. Of, you know, how far can you go with a certain kind of idea? And it's useful for the discussion. So that's that's what I hope you know will come of it. That 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 it, it is a useful contribution to this uh, communal project hmm. of of being involved with with these texts. So that that brings me to the next question I was going to ask you is at the beginning of the book in the introduction I believe you talk about your um interest in and maybe adherence to this idea of a negative theology. Um right. for those who don't know what negative theology is, could you explain that and then after you explain it a little bit maybe tell us what what you find attractive about it. Well, Negative theology is, uh, it's the idea that you can't really make any positive statements about God. I mean, they can work in different ways. It could be that language can't handle um, positive statements about God because human language is based on human experience and and human life, and God is beyond that. So obviously our language will not correctly 
be able to correctly describe anything about uh, God's essence, certainly, whereas also could be even at a cognitive level that human beings are, not only can't we speak of God, we can't really think of God properly in a, in a, in a really true way. But so there, there, there's a whole philosophical tradition behind that. But for me, and I think I mentioned it in the introduction, uh, it's more of a, a question of uh, epistemological, epistemic modesty. Mm. That, right, like I'm going to say something about God. Oh, you know, come on. Like, yeah, I understand God. I'm going to put him in my front pocket. You know, it's like when when I hear people, for instance, in theology, talk about perfect being theology. And then what is God? Oh, God is a the most perfect being, uh, being uh, that you can't think of a, of a more perfect being than God or whatever. I feel like that is defining God the way you define a circle. And now that I have this, this crisp, logical definition of God, I can put him in my front pocket and I can do all kinds of logical exercises with that definition and come up with all kinds of theological conclusions. And come on, he's God. So, so God. I have, I have sort to of... be modest about it. Obviously, I'm not going to really get it right. Even yeah. if I, even, even if, even in, in, in perfect being theology. God is the is the is the greatest possible being. I come on, I you know, and then it's got me my categories of judgment on what makes something great, and those are going to be human categories. Oh, right? I see what you're saying. So, so can... it's it just hopeless, you know. So I, so I can talk about, I can sort of talk about God, and I think I mentioned in the introduction. There's a there's a Hebrew expression kiviachol as if, right? As if I'm talking about God. I once um, I can't remember that there is a term in Greek. I think that that is uh, very parallel to this. Unfortunately, I don't remember what it is that appeared. I think in the Church Fathers. Um, oh yeah, um, I'm not a. I don't consider myself yeah, apathetic. Is that right? No, no, no. But 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 this yeah. this as if as oh. if I could talk about God. Oh, I, I don't know. You know, here yeah. I'm saying all this stuff about God as if I have any business talking about God. As if you know, I'm wrapping up God in in this sentence. Hmm. So on the one hand, I'm talking about God. I am, you know, and that's all. Is as a human being, you know, we have the scripture and uh, we have this interaction with God and, and as human beings, we have to do something with it, but always have to have in the back of our heads that, you know, it's hopeless. You're not going to really understand mm -hmm. God, right? I, I guess the way I conceive of it is like, um, like I, I, I'm fine with perfect being language with respect to God. Um, even if I'm not quite sure I can comprehend what a perfect being is like, I guess you could say. So maybe, maybe I'm a sneeze away from the whole, um, negative theology idea, but at the same time, I feel like we can, um, we can say something positive about God, right? I mean, 
and, 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 and correct me if I'm wrong in your book, you, you, you don't seem to ascribe to, per, I mean, uh, negative theology a hundred percent. Like he seems like you'd leave the room open to say, well, we can say something about God though. Is, am I getting you right there? Sort of, but I always, okay. I, I feel like I'm always hedging my bets that, you know, uh, don't, I'm not going to pretend that I put my finger on God's essence. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's more, it's not, you know, there, there is a philosophical tradition of mm -hmm. negative theology and, and I like certain aspects of that, especially as it relates uh, to uh, Jewish mysticism, but I'm more motivated by uh, epistemic uh, modesty. Yeah, I, I'm totally on board with you there. Like, we are finite creatures, and we need to take that seriously with respect to... Although, although, oh my God, I should mention him, my good friend who's... Uh, there is a there is a Christian Bible scholar who I, uh, mm -hmm. I can't remember his name. I mentioned him in the book, I think, in the... Where did I do with the book? Who I I talk I talked to him about this stuff and it's terribly embarrassing. I don't remember his no, name. No, I look at the acknowledgments. Yeah, you're good. You're good. Go ahead. Um, Take your time. Philip Sumter. Okay. Philip Sumter. He wrote a book on he wrote a book on uh, Psalms and I actually met him. He was he hmm. he spent a few years uh, teaching at um, there's an evangelical Bible college in nazareth it's the only place i think in israel where protestant christian arabs can study in in arabic you know at, at, uh, at an academic level at a degree level because you know most i think that most uh most uh, christian arabs are uh, eastern orthodox or catholic and so this is a uh, within israel this is the institution and he was there and i was i actually taught there a little bit and in one of my discussions with him, he made a good point. He said, you know, you're saying that you with your tiny brain, but can you understand about God? However, there is revelation. And God has said certain things which seem to be self-descriptive. So what's the problem you may not be able with your little brain to 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 know things about god but if god is going to the trouble of formulating language which is supposed to inform us to some extent about his nature then uh, and and that's what scripture is well then why shouldn't he succeed i think he said something along those lines which is uh you know it's an interesting point mm -hmm. but still even even if even if I saw scripture as being directly formulated by God, it still has to go through my brain. Hey friends, I hope this episode is a blessing and encouragement to you. I hope that every episode of The Bible Unmuted gives you something fresh to consider and something deep to ponder. My goal is to offer food for thought, to give listeners the tools they need to be faithful interpreters of scripture. I cherish your continued prayers for this ministry and thanks so much to everyone who lifts me up in prayer each week. If you're finding this podcast to be helpful for your study of scripture, consider leaving a review of the show and sharing with your friends. 
Perhaps even consider becoming a Patreon member. This will give you access to some cool stuff and it helps support the podcast. You can become a patron for as little as $5 a month. Every Patreon supporter gets access to a monthly bonus episode, as well as an invitation to a book club, where we come together periodically and chat about a book that we read together. There are various levels of support too, which will get you access to other things. You have the option to join monthly Zoom meetings with me, where we come together and discuss all sorts of fun, biblical, theological stuff. Another tier of support will get your name thrown into monthly book giveaways as well. All to say, there are lots of cool features for patrons of The Bible Unmuted. If you're interested, visit patreon.com slash thebibleunmuted or follow the Patreon link in the description for this episode. Thanks so much for your support. Yeah, yeah, and I, there, you know, there's so much I like about this idea of negative theology, but there's also a part of me where it's like, I don't know if I want to go the whole way, and I don't know. I'm, I don't consider myself like a theologian proper. I'm more of a biblical scholar, you know, um, as opposed to the, the, theologians. I just like to read my Bible. <laughs> that's that's my dig at theologians. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. I have really good the, theologian friends, um, but I have to like sneak that in there sometimes because I wish I, theologians I have, would read I, the Bible. But <laughs> I have I have to throw in the point what I like that I had in the introduction that had to do with mm-hmm. negative theology that I said that that theologically. It I forgot what I called it, chapter zero of Genesis. Oh. Yeah, you do. That was interesting. Yeah. Chapter zero of, of Genesis is the most uh, theologically important chapter because it that was an interesting in, concept. Yeah. In other in other uh cultures, when there's a story about the gods or or about creation, it's all, a creation always starts with a theogony. Like with Hesiod, it's a theogony. It's where did the gods come from and the world comes along the way. And so you have a biography of the gods before things are created. And then there's this whole idea of gods having biographies. And in the Hebrew Bible, you don't get that. God's there. I don't know where he came from. The the, the whole biographical buildup to God creating the world is missing. What comes we, before the bait? <laughs> right. right. And, yeah. and so I interpret that theologically, philosophically, whatever is saying, right, that that is negative theology. You want to know what God is, not in terms of his relationship to to creation. Forget it. It's hmm. chapter zero of Genesis. Is it's a blank page. You it's don't not know there. About it. Interesting. Yeah, that, that was an interesting point that you made. Um Okay, so I want to ask you about. I feel like we're not getting out of the introduction here. We we are. I just said, listeners, we're gonna get into the meat of the book because it's it's super interesting. Some of the things you get, but I I do. I want to go back to the introduction just real quick again, because um, one thing I I liked about your book was your honesty. Um, you say, let's see, yeah, you say you're not out to write a book on apologetics, and you even admit that some of your exegetical conclusions are not all that attractive, but that that really doesn't matter because you're simply trying to understand what the text actually says. And so let me read a little quote from page two. You say, I have tried to resist such apologetic strategies and I hope have not, I have that I have not strayed outrageously from a reasonably plain reading of the traditional Hebrew Masoretic text. I find some of the ideas I draw from scripture less than completely attractive, but what can I do? I'm trying to make sense of those texts. Could you unpack that a little bit? Tell us the. Sure. I can give two examples that will draw us into later sections. Okay. So so one thing is um 
you know, I have a section of the book where I where I talk about the the epistemology of Hebrew scriptures, and I say that uh, covenantal history must must be can be held up to the to the test of factual uh, truth. You know that uh, it's a problem for for scripture if there was no exodus from Egypt. And because that's that's the built-in epistemology of scripture that you know because because it is telling the story of how a covenant came to be and how it was worked out and how each side keeps its part of the covenant and because a covenant is a kind of a legal document and so it involves what i call it's it's judged by what i call the uh the epistemology of the courtroom right that you know i have a contract with somebody and i say i'll pay them money if they if they paint my house well really have to know did they paint the house did i pay the money it's not a metaphor and so if if it's supposed to be that god uh, took the israelites out of egypt and he did x y and z but then the israelites did a b and c and how does that all uh, rack up against uh, the covenant and that explains how how the process developed sorry i it doesn't look like you'll be able to wish away historical criticism by saying that it's metaphorical. It means what it says because it's it's covenantal history. So that's an unfortunate thing because <laughs> you know that 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 makes uh, the Hebrew scriptures susceptible to uh, archaeological, historical, etc. critique that have theological consequences. So you take a so realist that's... approach to those questions. Like it's it's a non-negotiable if it's if if the Hebrews, ancient Hebrews did not leave Egypt in an Exodus, the whole thing falls apart. In some way, yeah. Unless mm -hmm. we're gonna go for you know I would agree with you there on that too. Like there you have to have a realist approach, I think. So, so in Judaism, of course, there's also you know a mystical tradition and different things. And the question is, how much authority weight are you going to give to the uh, rabbinic tradition, to the oral tradition, to mystical tradition, which is not necessarily you know a hundred percent just going along with this particular covenantal history. And uh, you know, can 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 things be saved in that way? Uh, you know, as an apologetic move, I think maybe it could. But certainly, the way I present it in the book, things look rather dire. And the other another thing that I talk about, it it wasn't just a question of uh, biblical interpretation, but also dealing with the reality, interpreting the Bible, and looking at the reality of the world that I uh, have that section against um, imitatio Dei, against the idea of imitation of God as being a model for morality because God doesn't seem to be behaving in a way that we want people to behave. So it's it's a problem. I definitely want to ask you about that. I have that, I have that written down. Uh, yeah, so, anyway, sorry, you know, so there are a few things it, like that. And in general... Although I wrote in I wrote in the introduction, obviously, 
the ideas that I have drawn out of scripture in this book do not resonate well with Psalms, for instance, because I have not left much room for some kind of personal relationship with God and the, the relationship with God being a source of, of uh, meaning that, that, uh, that, that somehow solves your existential angst. You, you don't like you don't that. feel like you did leave room in your book for that? I don't feel like I left much room for that. Really? Okay. I, did, I didn't I get that. For, I mean, just personally. Oh, good. Yeah. Maybe yeah. maybe the last chapter was happy. Yeah. But but I felt like it was very much, uh, you know, God is doing his thing and we are people and, uh, you know, we have morality and values that really do not need God for for, for their basis. And then we get involved in this whole story with God, who, yeah, God is going after his, his creator's goals, which we can sort of identify with, but certainly not entirely. And if I am suffering and, and I am having you know, an existential crisis, how much the model I gave will, will help people with that. I'm not. I'm not sure how much. If somebody wants to have, uh, you know, uh, some kind of uh, help or direction in in their spiritual development, I think that the way I presented things, it's not very much a model that talks about scripture as leading you along a, a path towards something. It's this story, there's this, this this people, Israel, and there's God, and they're having this thing going on between them. Of course, I did not go into the legal aspects of the Torah very much, and maybe that's why, you know, that's where you would find it with, uh, you know, the commandments and things like that. Then then you would, maybe it would be more of a way of life and, and solving the, the questions of the good life. But what I wrote, I don't feel really went into the, the questions of, of what is the good life. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I can see that part perhaps, but, but I, I can really sympathize going back to your realist approach to say the Exodus. Like, I feel like because you've rooted that in, and, and you've argued that this has to be rooted in actual history in, in some way, I think by doing that makes theology, makes the reality of God, well, it makes the concept of God, or it, it brings him into reality. Like people can't ignore it in that sense. Like you've, you've placed him in the world in a sense by saying that the exodus had to have happened in order for these sorts of things to be you know intelligible or something as a christian you know i i do the same thing with the resurrection of jesus like i don't take a spiritualistic metaphorical approach to the resurrection i think it actually happened and i and i agree with saint paul when he says that if jesus didn't rise from the dead then everything crumbles right so he's he's done the same thing with the resurrection and and I, I think, I, I, I think there's a lot to that, and um, to those, to that approach of, of what you might call like a realist interpretation of, of the text of Exodus. And I would, I would agree with you. But my point is, as soon as you root it in the real world, is the moment that like, next question needs to be asked: Is okay, what are you going to do about it? Like, what are you going to do with the reality of God? I don't know. Does that make sense? At least where I'm coming yeah. from, perhaps. So actually, okay, fine. You've given me a way out. <laughs> To show how it gives you value in the world. Well, that was in, in I think, in the 
the end of the book, this the the section on the book of Ruth. Oh, okay, yeah, I can't remember what what chapter that was yet. I think I think deals with that where uh, basically what I did with, there was I took the book of Ruth and I and I pointed out that do your can I assume that listeners know the story of the book of Ruth? Yeah, I think so. But if you need to yeah, okay. go into a little bit more, go ahead. But all right, so so there I argue that the book of Ruth is a retelling of a typical biblical story, Old Testament, here I'm Jewish, I'm supposed to call it Hebrew Bible story about a woman who is barren or too old to have children, and then somehow miraculously, yes, she has a child. But taking that story and having all of the mechanics of it be completely human, and the whole story moves forward not through a miraculous providential uh, interference in history and nature, but rather through people being kind to each other and taking responsibility. So in the so in the in the beginning of the story, when Ruth is going with with her two daughters-in-law, they're 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 leaving Moab, and she and. And she's trying to tell uh, Ruth why she shouldn't stick around with her. Naomi says, "Don't don't hang around with me. I'm I'm too old to have children." You know, with the idea that you would you were married to one of my sons who died, and and I don't have another son for you, and I'm too old to have to have a child who would grow up to become your husband. To leverite marriage, I guess. So there, in the beginning, you have the issue of uh, a woman who who, who claims, like uh, Sarah, laughing that she's too old to have children. To, she's too old to be with a man, I think she says. And then in the very one of the very last verses, it says the women are saying a child is born to Naomi, or she's called Naomi. What do you call her in English? Naomi. Naomi. I say Naomi, as to <laughs> Naomi. All right. So it sounds like if any if somebody was missing all the I do a thought experiment suppose suppose you found a dead sea scroll just with the first few verses of Ruth and just with the last few verses of Ruth and all the scholars were saying what happened in the middle they would say well uh, yeah, there was probably some kind of angel or prophet somebody came to her and said there will be a miracle and and somehow you'll get pregnant and then this wonderful thing happened and then in the end this this old woman managed to have a child but in fact as i said it was just that ruth in this tremendous act of kindness was un, was not willing to abandon her her mother-in-law and uh, Boaz is willing to to deal with these with with, with this impoverished, uh, uh, distant relative who showed up and then married this this strange woman, strange not weird, but that she's she's a Moabite, and in that way, the problem is dealt with through everybody shouldering responsibility and being kind, and of course in the end of the Book of Ruth that results. In that's followed by the genealogy of David, which is, you know, eventually be considered, you know, the 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 house of of the of the 
of a king messiah. So here you have this very important step in a providential plan, which is dealt with entirely through human kindness and people taking responsibility for each other. And, um, and it's a really nice thing that uh, here, here was a, a time when, when divine intentions and divine goals apparently really, really matched with uh, human ethical concerns. And it was wonderful, right? So I can only hope, although in the book I say it doesn't always work out that way, but the hope is that we can move forward with, um, with, with the divine plan, providential plan, really being served by human beings properly seen to their human duties. So that's okay. a kind of hopeful message in the end, but I don't think the, I don't know that the book supports that that's what's going to really happen. Hmm. Because God may still have all kinds of things up his sleeve, ways that he wants history to work out, which will not be too nice for us as individuals and, and will not serve our, our present uh, ethical uh, interests. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's kind of, there's kind of a segue here. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You mentioned the imitation of God. And so we're going to come back to the idea of covenant because that was a really interesting thing, especially what you do with Abraham and you tie God's covenant with Abraham to his existence, which I thought was pretty interesting. And um, we'll get to that in a moment. But I want to go back to the imitation of God idea. So give us your take on the imitation of God, because if I, if I could be honest, like this is the one part I'm like, oh, I don't know. I don't. I don't know if I would put it like this. And there were parts I'm, I might not. I, I think I would disagree with you on a few things here. Okay. Not on everything, because just depending on how you parse out. But nonetheless, I want to. I want you to tell me what you think um, and tell the listeners kind of your overall argument here. Um, so let's take your concept, the concept of the imitation of God. Um, you have a section where you parse it out very carefully. And why is that concept important to your larger project with respect to human moral systems and the divine moral system, because you put a wedge between the two. Right. And that's where I was uncomfortable with. I'm like, oh, I don't think I would put a, I don't think I would put that big of a wedge, but I understand. I understand that there are some things that God can do that we cannot do. Right. So anyway, I'll shut up. T- tell us, tell us what right. you're thinking. Well, well, since uh, I don't think I've, I have yet expressed the, what is allegedly the, uh, the organizing, uh, thesis of the book, although I'll let I'll let your listeners in for secret mm-hmm. that in the course of writing this book, it was originally supposed to be published by Cambridge and was and and they said the manuscript wasn't long enough for them to consider it after when I thought I had completed it. And then I was looking around and end up Rutledge was willing to and then they wanted another 10,000 words at Rutledge. Hmm. So if you're wondering what all of the chapters have to do with with this unifying thesis, sort of, um, I'll just, if- if, And and by the way, let's let's just pause real quick because your chapters are actually essays that were published previously in journals. A lot of them. A lot of them them were, okay. Okay, yeah. So, so- It's more of a so, collection of essays, yeah, I guess you and, and And if I can just throw out the, the, the thing that makes me feel okay with this, uh, 
important for anyone who ever has to write anything for publication, right? T.S. Eliot, super classic modernist poet, writes a poem, The Wasteland, the masterpiece of English modernist poetry. It has footnotes. Amazing. Who would imagine having footnotes to a poem? <laughs> wow. He is like breaking the mold. Well, I understand that actually when he wanted to publish a book, the book of poetry with the wasteland, the publishers told him, not enough words. So he footnotes it? <laughs> so he added footnotes. <laughs> And then oh, everybody's saying, whoa, it's so radical. Who would imagine having footnotes who promise just to get it published? So that makes <laughs> me feel okay. In any case. I didn't I didn't know that. That's interesting. That's oh, okay. a story I heard. Apparently it's true. Okay. So in any case, so so the basic the the, the main alleged uh, organizing thesis of the book is that God is uh, as far as we understand, God is a he's acting as a creator God. He has creator purposes. He is apparently interested in creating a worthy world. And um, at a basic level, it didn't have to be our world. If When our world didn't work out, he destroyed it. In the, well, the previous world, he dis destroyed it in the flood. He started over. So um, he, he doesn't really have any... Prima facie, to begin with, he doesn't have any real responsibility towards any particular world. He's just trying to, to create a worthy world. Whereas we as human beings belong to this particular world. And uh, that is the basis of our values, of our life, of, of, of what we have to do here. And then there's the interaction between the two, uh, between God and, and humanity which comes out of covenants, starting with the covenant with Noah, right? Where God says, you know what? So I'm not going to destroy this world anymore. Oh, God now has uh, created special moral duties by making a promise. And then uh, he, he makes various covenants, uh, especially with, with uh, the Israelites. And, and he gains duties towards them, and they gain duties towards him because uh, each side has entered into this covenant and created new moral duties. Anyway, but there still is a remainder of, of uh, I have no idea how to say it in English. Uh, you know, things don't exactly meet. It doesn't. The 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 two things aren't entirely in harmony. The 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 creator god's goals and and duties do not exactly match the kind of roles and duties that are appropriate to human beings and so he asks human beings to do things which are sort of morally problematic as far as human morality goes and humans are sort of pressuring god into doing things that don't necessarily uh forward his plan and that's and that's why it's covenants and cross purposes in any case, so with this basic idea of, I mean, God and human beings coming from entirely different existential situations, it's not surprising that their ethics are not exactly the same. And that would mean that if I wanted to learn how to behave properly 
from looking at how God behaves, he is not an appropriate model, certainly not a, a perfect model because he's coming from a different place. He's, he's, he's a different kind of thing that, that, uh, that, that does not inform what kind of life I should be living. What he, I'm not doing what he's doing. I'm not, a, I'm not a world creator. And then if we just look at what, look at scripture, God asks human beings to be involved in various activities that uh, apparently forward his interests, his plans, but in ways that are not really appropriate for, for human beings to be doing, you know, things like uh, wars of genocide you know, sort of pointless wars of genocide, like the war against the Amalekites. That's that's a war that, that is supposed to take place. I think it's in Deuteronomy. It says that when God has, has, has done away with all of your enemies, then go after the Amalekites. If I don't have any enemies, why in the world as a human being am I, am I fighting a genocidal war against these Amalekites? They're not my enemy. God said it's what you do after you've gotten rid of all your enemies. So there would seem to be some friction. And because of that, I can't just say, I'm going to act like God. Because God, and also, you know, you see God himself not only asking us to do things, but God doing things. You know, playing around with human history and causing disasters and famines and all kinds of plagues and stuff that really uh, human beings have no business doing stuff like that. So that um, it's a little iffy how much we can really look at God and say, that's how I should behave. So I think I think this is where I was probably out of the whole book most uncomfortable, if I could be honest, because sure, I, I um, I'm so if, if I could just kind of push back just briefly, and I'm, I'm not trying to make this a debate by no means. It's just I, li <laughs> no, I like dialogue. I no, don't, I, I don't. Yeah. I don't have a big emotional investment in this, <laughs> this thesis. You know, it's just something I threw out there, right? And perhaps I'm just taking you up on the offer in the introduction where you say, I don't, I'm not, you say, I don't really find these exegetical conclusions attractive necessarily, but what can I do? I'm just trying to, you know. So, um, okay, so yeah, this is probably where I felt most uncomfortable. It, it just, I didn't know. Well, and let me just back up because I think, I think a couple of things need to be said is, if it's true that there's this huge disjunction, friction, as you say, between God's moral system and human moral systems, you know, what would you say to someone who responded and said, well, can they be wholly separate like that? Because where did the human moral system come from? Because in my mind, maybe I've just read too much C.S. Lewis or something, but like, I think human moral system in some way has to have a direct line back to God, you know? And I, in, the, in the idea of a how how would that concept fit into the whole cross purposes idea that that, that thesis? Well, I'm going to say something uh, <laughs> completely in opposition to what you just said. I think sure. Go ahead. <laughs> my experience, a sort of natural reading, at least certainly of the Hebrew scriptures. I mean, I've read, I've read a great deal of of uh, the New Testament, but, uh, you know, it's not my book, and I, I, I don't feel like I'm the one to, 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 uh, to describe its contents, but as far as, as far as Hebrew scriptures goes, I think that they assume that there's a realist ethic 
which, you know, God is in favor of it. One of the things that God would like people to do, basically, certainly, God is part of God's uh, uh, plan is the desideratum, you know, what, the, what, what he would like to see in a worthy world is basically people fulfilling their ethical duties is an important part of it. But those ethical duties, you know, they're just, they just make sense. And, and, you know, ethical realism. And I, and I, I just don't see in the Hebrew scriptures, God saying something like, um, I've got news for you. Don't murder. Wow. You know, now we got the 10 commandments. We figured that one out. You're not supposed to murder people. No. You know, Cain and Abel, they already had a problem with murdering. You know, so um and and so on with the with the with the various uh, moral commandments, you know, maybe it would give you a, maybe the um ethical commandments of of the Torah can uh, sort of sharpen up your your moral intuitions and direct you and also because they serve as laws to order a society, etc. But I think that the assumption of Hebrew scriptures is that, come on, everybody knows what's right. God wants you to basically, in, except in un, very unusual circumstances, God wants you to do what's right. And he's going to tell you to do it. But that's not why it's it's not right because God told you. Mm. God is, is is maybe enforcing it in some situations or, could, or he sends prophets to cajole you to 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 uh fulfill your moral obligations but it's not like oh well god hadn't said it you know we would never have figured it out sure so anyway that that's so so human or human moral systems are more rooted in natural uh just the natural way the, the universe is wired it's not so much revelation as it is i don't know I okay, mean, I've studied okay. enough ethics that I have sure. that all I know is I I really feel like I'm a like like I'm an ethical realist. Okay. But I've studied enough ethics to know that I I can't explain how it works. Sure, sure. That, yeah, that that's very. Honest, I'm yeah. pretty sure. I'm pretty sure that you know there is some kind of realism, and sometimes situations are extremely complicated. Is the problem? Of course. Yeah. But, you know, in, in any system, you know, in the natural world, things are very complicated. You know, one of my sons is a physicist. And uh, whenever I talk to him about uh, philosophers talking about, uh, you know, the, is, is, is the world determined by laws of nature or does, uh, you know, the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum theory allow for uh, free will and stuff like that. And he'll say, you know what quantum theory is? You know, to explain the activity of a single hydrogen atom. <sighs> it's come on. Yeah. You know, it's like as if I'm going to start from what is supposed to be the basic laws of nature and explain in any system the size of a molecule, just hopeless. Hmm. So if that's how nature is, 
as far as its physical properties, it's, it, you know, so, you yeah. know, morality can certainly get just as, as complicated. And then, you know, we would really love there to be very simple rules that we can apply. But the moral world is just as complicated as, as the physical world. Now that, but I think we can figure it out pretty well a lot of the time. You know, although engineers don't use quantum field theory to build bridges, hmm. they, they know pretty well how to build bridges that last long enough. And, you know, and it's pretty clear, you know, that's a responsible bridge. That's a good bridge. This is going to do the job and this one won't. And that bridge is terrible. You know, I'm reminded of... Um, let me see. If you you're the philosopher. What's the name? There's the uh, there is the uh, Indian uh, economist philosopher. He got he got the Nobel Prize, and he he worked together with Martha Nussbaum. I'm not sure. It's, it sounds oh vaguely God, I can't remember his name. Anyway, so yeah, he he has a great remark about ideal theory in ethics, hmm. where he talks about stop trying to pin down exactly what justice is. Think about it like drawing water for a bath in the bathtub. You know that if it's boiling, it's too hot and you're going to get burned. Hmm. And you know if it's like, you know, here you're in America, right? So let's say if it's only, uh, you know, 40 degrees Fahrenheit, it's going to be way too cold. Do we know what the exact best temperature is for to take a bath? No, we don't. But we have a pretty realistic, you know, genuine idea of, no, that one was too hot and that one was too cold. And, you know, we're messing around with what's in the middle. So, you know, that's sort of my, my way of, of looking at ethics, that there's something real there can get extremely complicated so that it's very difficult to figure out. I wrote an article about this once that uh, to figure out the best ethical solution is, you know, forget it. It's the most ethical action in a particular situation given the possibility of infinite creativity in what people do. Who knows? You know, have some wonderful thing no one thought of. Who knows what the best thing to do is? But you know what things are better than others, usually, you know, unless there's some crazy consequentialist uh, thing down the road. But anyway. So, so, so let's take everything you said here and put it in something concrete, namely the story of Job. That's the end of today's episode. And thanks again for listening to The Bible Unmuted. If you like this podcast, consider rating it on your podcast platform, subscribing to it, and sharing with your friends. You can also support the podcast by becoming a Patreon member. Go to patreon.com slash thebibleunmuted or simply find the link to the Patreon page in the description for this episode. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, friends.